Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, we are back into the school groove here at the Cockrell home. It, ending of summer is always a little bit bittersweet for me. It's uh, bitter in the sense that he, I do a lot of work from home, but I just like having the kids around. I like having Mary around. And so it's bitter knowing that now they're, they're back at school all day. It's sweet though, because I don't know about you, I find it harder to be disciplined during the summer in my eating, in my working out, in my sleep habits. So I am uh, excited to get back into this routine. So the older I get, the more I realize that I thrive with the, with the, with the routine. Even if I don't like it, it's, it's the truth. So um, we are going to continue talking about the church in this sermon series, Church in 3D. We are looking at the three main dimensions of church life. There is that vertical dimension, our relationship as a body with our Father, uh, with the Holy Spirit, with the Son. We looked at that last week. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go online and, and watch it or listen to that sermon. Next week, we're going to talk about the outward dimension of church life, our relationship to the people outside of these walls. This morning, we're talking about the inward dimension. So what about, our, uh, what about our relationship to one another? What, you know, why is that important and why does that matter? So in order to um, have the Bible guide our thoughts here, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I want to read these verses to you. And I encourage you, this is a long section of scripture and there's a lot there. But I encourage you to really focus. I know it's easy when I read a long passage to start zoning out, start thinking about you know your to-do list that you got to accomplish, you know after church, and oh my goodness, Monday's here, and I'm not even ready for the week. But let's zone in to this because God's word is living and it's active, and when we allow it to speak to our hearts, it transforms us. All right, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians. He says this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. Beseech means to command in a fervent kind of, with force kind of a way. So I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, and if you ever read this passage, this is where it gets confusing. So let me just add some commentary uh, that hopefully will help. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, that means Jesus. So when Jesus ascended on high, and I think that's referring to um, not only his uh, ascension up onto the cross, but also his ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven after his resurrection. So when Jesus ascended on high, he led captivity captive, meaning he defeated the evil spirit. 
spirits and, and, and the forces that were holding humanity captive. And he gave gifts to men, which means us. Now, now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. So Jesus, Philippians 2 tells us, although he was God, he, he relinquished his rights and privileges of God and he came to live as a, a human so that he could rescue us, right? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So Jesus, he ascended to the right hand of the Father after his resurrection, and from there in heaven, he is ruling and reigning over all. Okay? Now, the gifts he gave to men are this. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Edifying means the building up of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But... Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying, the building of itself up in love. Okay. So, one, you may have heard this, living in our American culture, but one big push in the last couple of years, I would say, is for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the world. Maybe you've heard those terms, right? Um, this is a very good thing. Um, we as Christians might differ in the broader culture of how that can actually come to fruition, but those, those things are good things. And yet, despite all this emphasis in the last couple of years on diversity, equity, and inclusion, our culture in America is probably more divided and polarized than, I don't know, than ever before. Like, but it is really, I think we would all agree, and I don't think anybody would really argue against the fact and the reality that we're extremely divided and we are polarized in our country. Um, you see it here, even in our city. Think about this. We all know where the African Americans in this city live, predominantly. Not all, but most. Southeast side of town. We are still segregated in this very city. Um, I was talking with a guy who does ministry in Canton, and I don't know if you're familiar with redlining. That happened in the 50s and 60s here in our country. But what happened there was basically there were laws and kind of guidelines that forced African Americans out of certain sections of the town and put them in, you know, segregated uh, sections of town. And what often happened, and this is what happened in Canton, is they put highways in to block the not, not the only reason, but they were strategic in putting highways in to separate and segregate blacks from whites. This happened in Canton, uh, 77, 
when it was put in it wiped out the whole african-american business section of the city destroyed their businesses gave them pennies on the dollar for their property and separated them from the rest of canton this stuff we're still seeing the effects of redlining today that happened in the 50s and 60s still divided um, we're divided in terms of wealth, right? Um, that segregates us. Politics is, is big right now in terms of divisiveness. We have people who even, we're even divided over looks. I was talking to a guy who lives in Florida about a month ago, and he was talking to me about where he lives and this like community he's in, and it's just full of beautiful people. And he was talking about physically beautiful people, right? We are often divided on our hobbies. Our workplaces are just like hotbeds of division and conflict and strife. Um, so for all our emphasis on diversity, equity, and inclusion, it just doesn't seem to be happening. Now, check this out. Um, the world that the Apostle Paul was talking to the Ephesians in was extremely uh, you know, divided. It was really religiously diverse. People worshiped all kinds of different gods. And yet, what's amazing about the early church is itself was really diverse. You had people, you had Jews and Gentiles, you had Greeks and Romans, you had Samaritans and Africans, slaves and freed people, you had educated and non-educated people, you had rich and poor, you had the well-connected, you had the marginalized, you had men and women uh, both having important roles in the church. Probably never before up until that time of the early church had uh, people seen such a radically diverse community of people that didn't reflect the segregation that was happening in the larger Roman world. It was spectacular. And yet, as diverse as the early church was, it was radically unified, and there was tremendous cohesion. Check out Acts 4.32. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own but they had all things in common. What the world needs now in these extremely divisive and polarizing times is they need a church that is radically diverse and yet radically unified in love. That's what the world needs now. And what excites me about what we read in our passage today is that it is actually possible. That's what this passage is telling us. It can be done. So what I want to do is I want to talk about why it can be done. And I want to talk about why it is important that it is done, that we do have a community of radical diversity and unity, and why you should desire it. Okay? So I'm going to give you four reasons why it's possible from our passage, and one reason why we need it and you should desire it. Let's, let's look at this first one. God's grace makes diversity and unity possible. What does God's grace consist of? You know, we use that word a lot. It's really easy to become familiar with Christianese. And then what happens is you become unfamiliar with it because you really don't think of hard on it anymore. You just get used to it. Grace. 
I would say <laughs> one of the great verses that tells us what God's grace consists of is Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is grace. Notice that this verse doesn't say, hey, when we got our act together, Christ died for us. When we made ourselves, you know, lovable enough, Christ died for us. No, what it's making clear is that when we were rebelling against God, when we were, you know, engaging in sin that was destroying us, destroying the people in our lives, mismanaging the beautiful creation that God has made, and incapable of changing ourselves, powerless to change ourselves, Christ died for us. This is extraordinary grace. I mean, Romans 5, 7, right before this verse, it says, Scarcely would a person die for a righteous person. And what it's, what it's implying is, like, who dies for a wicked person? Christ does. You and I are those wicked people, broken rebels. He died for us. This is grace. Totally undeserving. We, 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 we had nothing to earn this grace. That's why it's grace. Alright, so why this is important is because grace is the doorway into the family of God, which creates a community of radical equality. Let me explain this to you. Think about any other community that you're a part of in our culture, our community, right? So if you are on a sports team, or if you're at a certain place of work, or if you're in a certain club, or all of those communities, you get in because you have the credentials to get in. You have merit that opens the door for you. You have the resume, you have the looks, you have the talent, whatever. And so, all communities in our city here, they all have a hierarchy within them. Because you have people in these communities that got in with, you know, they passed the test with flying colors, and you have people that barely got in by the skin of their teeth. And so, you have people in these communities that can look at other people in the community and say, you know, I'm better than that person. They barely got in here. I'm, I'm the cream of the crop. Now, in God's community, you get in precisely because you have no credentials. Nothing. No credentials. You have no merit. You have nothing that gets you in. No one in God's family can look around and say, I am better than you. We are all spiritually dead, disconnected from our Creator, and there are no degrees of dead. Dead is dead. If you're dead, you're dead. And so, this creates, this grace that we enter into the family by creates this radical equality. You see, God's community is more like a group of people that were rescued from a burning house. Let me explain. So, let's imagine that there were 10 people who were unconscious because of smoke and inhalation, and there was this brave, heroic firefighter that had the courage to go into that burning house and, and drag those unconscious people out before they burned up into a crisp. Now imagine these 10 that were rescued standing in a group 
after the fact, in safety, saying, you know, <laughs> I was better than you, and that's why I got saved. And it, no, there was nothing about them. They were unconscious doing nothing. It was all about that heroic firefighter and his courage that came in and saved them. How can the person, the one person in that group boast over another person in that group in regards to their salvation from this burning house? You see, the same thing is, is true here in the family of God. Now, you need to know this. Well, you may have heard. All right, so when we read, therefore, in the Bible, what are we supposed to do? Come on, somebody knows. Don't be shy and bashful. What is it there for? We are to ask, what is it there for? Does our passage, how does it start? I therefore. Which means there was something important that came before chapter 4 of Ephesians. So what came before Ephesians 4? Ephesians 1 through 3, right? Guess what's in Ephesians 1 through 3? Paul, he details the gospel of grace. And he explains it in such amazing terms. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Ephesians, who were radically diverse, again, more, way more diverse than this church, this is what he's saying. Look, you Ephesians, you're only going to be able to, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bear one another in love, Despite your diversity, if your heart is moved by the fact that Jesus made himself lowly, came to you gently as a lamb and not as a lion, to suffer long for you to bear your burdens in love when you are completely undeserving. You see, the only way, this rings true for us today, if our heart is not moved by the gospel, if it hasn't become real to our heart, we are not going to be able to walk worthy uh, of our calling. We're not going to be able to relate to one another with all lowliness, gentleness, and patience to maintain our unity despite our diversity. All right. Number one, God's grace makes diversity and unity possible. Let's go to number two. God in us makes diversity and unity possible. possible. So in verse 6, Paul says something here, and it's really easy just to read by it and miss it, but he says to the Ephesians, God is in you. He is in you all. And this makes all the difference. Because without God in us, our sin nature is such that it's always looking to elevate ourselves above other people. That is its mode of existence. And so, left to our own <laughs> nature, we are preoccupied with ourselves, we are self-absorbed, we are self-exalting, we are self-promoting. That's what needs to be broken in us, and it's only the Holy Spirit living inside of us that can actually break that nature, rewire us in such a way that we become other-focused. Look, if your interactions with people are not becoming increasingly seasoned with grace, understanding, patience, humility, 
in a listening ear, at worst, the Holy Spirit does not reside in you. And at best, you are greatly grieving the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. And so, you need to check yourself and ask, is this becoming increasingly me? If not, this is what the Holy Spirit does. And so you have to ask some hard questions and ask, have I really received Jesus? And, and by receiving him, have I received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Is he the Holy Spirit living inside of me? All right. You see what happens. Well, let me go, let me go to uh, point three. The inclusivity. So we have the, the, the gospel of grace makes radical uh, diversity and unity possible. Uh, God in us makes diversity and unity possible. Let's go to three. The inclusivity of the gospel makes diversity and unity possible. The gospel is radically inclusive. I mean, think about maybe the most known Bible verse, most quoted. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This verse does not say, For God so loved the white people. For God so loved the Hispanic population. For God so loved the rich. Or for God, God so loved the poor, right? Or for God so loved the Americans. It doesn't say any of those things. It says God loved the world. This means God loved all people. And he <clears throat> extended his invitation of salvation to all people. The gospel is radically inclusive. And what happens is the, the gospel then is able to create this radically diverse family of God in which there should absolutely be no place for racism, for sexism, or for classism. The book of Revelation, if you read it, what you see is you see people in the new heavens, new earth, you see a people group made up of uh, people from every nation, from all tribes, and from all languages, worshiping the Creator. The gospel is radically inclusive. Do you know that by the year 2045, so in just a little over 20 years, the people groups that are right now considered minorities in our country will become the majority? That's what the census data, data tells us. That means, in 2045, the combined population of Hispanics, Blacks, Asians, and multiracial populations will be greater than the white population. This should not bother us at the least. If it bothers you, that tells you something about your heart. <clears throat> Let's go to point number four. The essentials of the gospel make diversity and unity possible. Do you know that division in God's family often is a result of people mistaking the essentials of the faith for the non-essentials of the faith? People confusing matters of secondary importance for primary matter, you know, matters of primary importance. And what happens a lot in churches is you have certain people that have particular convictions 
about a secondary issue, and what they do is they make it a law for everybody else to follow. This will rip a church apart, and it's done it. I mean, this has happened too many times to count. It's sad. So, what are the essentials of the Christian faith? We'll ask that question, but let me first give you this quote. It's a quote from the time I started as pastor. I held on to and it is so good and it's so important. So a guy named Rupertus, sweet name by the way, Melendinius, wrote in a book on Christian unity this. In essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things charity. What wisdom. Man, can't wait to talk to this guy one day. What are the essentials of the Christian faith? Well, Paul, on our passage, he, he named some of them, does he not? Let's check them out. One body. So Orthodox Christianity believes, and if you swerve from what Paul's putting out in this passage, now you're, you're, you got something that isn't Christianity. For one of those things is one body. We believe that there's one family of God expressed in local congregations all over the globe. That's an essential. There's not multiple bodies of Jesus. There's one body. All right, next one. One spirit. We believe that all believers everywhere are indwelt with the one Holy Spirit. That's a non, uh, that is an essential, that's a non-negotiable, is what I meant to say there. And that Holy Spirit, we believe, is conforming us to the image of Christ, right? Let's look, he, Paul says one hope. All believers everywhere anticipate Jesus' return, where he will defeat evil once and for all. He will usher in the new heavens and new earth, where his family will live in resurrected bodies with the resurrected Jesus. And we will see God face to face, and God in that new world will be our source of unceasing joy. There will be no more war, no more division, no more suffering, no more pain. That's a non-negotiable, right? One Lord. Every believer's supreme allegiance is to Jesus as Lord. No one else is worthy to run our life. That's an essential. One faith. As believers, our trust is in Jesus. We believe that he did what was necessary through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension to redeem us and save us from sin, Satan, and death. And that's why the gospel is good news and not good advice, because it's all about what Jesus did for us that we couldn't do to save us. It's not what we must, some good advice, that we must engage in to somehow work our way up to God. One, baptism. We believe baptism paints this picture of the inward change that has happened in a believer. That their old life apart from Christ has been crucified and buried and they have been resurrected to a new life with Jesus in his kingdom, guided and directed by the Holy Spirit. One God. We believe God exists. One God exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who reigns supreme over everything, everywhere. He created everything. He sustains everything. He has no rival. He has no equal. He is, as Paul says in our passage, he's above all in power and wisdom and love. These are essentials of our faith. You swear from them, 
you no longer have Christianity. There's some others probably too. So, in these, unity. All right, what are the non-essentials of the Christian faith? Well, let me, let me give you some. And in these, there should be liberty. One is, whether God created the world in 24 hours, six 24-hour days, or whether those days represent longer periods of time. Is that important? Sure. Is it good to talk about? Sure. Isn't it essential? No. Good, awesome, really intelligent Christians land on different sides of this issue. Here's another not, uh, negotiable, uh, non-essential. How exactly and when will Jesus return? It's not an essential. You know what's essential is that Jesus is going to return. That goes to our one hope. But how and exactly, you know, how and when? Like, no. There are great people who love Jesus that land in different places. How about this? The style of music we use to worship. Non-essential. How ridiculous is it that this has divided and crushed churches? Kind of witnesses that to the world. All right, um, Jesus's exact birthday. Well, it's essential as he was born to the Virgin Mary. That's essential. The mode of baptism, sprinkled or immersed. Is it important? Sure, but is it an essential? No, not essential. The structure of leadership in a church is a non-essential. Check this out. I think this is Alistair Begg. A church absolutely must have Christ-like capable leaders to succeed. That's like a non-essential there. But how those leaders in their congregation choose to structure their polity is not essential to having a thriving gospel ministry. How about the use and application of spiritual gifts? Non-essential. There are plenty of good Bible-believing, loving Jesus people that land differently. How we decorate our church, not essential. How Christians should engage in politics, not essential. Important, not essential. Just because something is of secondary importance doesn't mean it's unimportant. It just means it's not essential. Amen? All right, so let us be unified in the matters of first importance. Let's allow freedom in matters of secondary importance, and in every matter there must be love. Can we be a community of people that can disagree without being disagreeable? Can we do that? All right, number five. So that's like why us as a family of God can be diverse and yet unified. Why do we want this though? Why do we want to be diverse and yet unified? Let me give you uh, three, hopefully, quick reasons why we should want this. First of all, A, we learn from our differences. We learn from our differences. Um, how nice it is, if we're open to it, to talk with people that have had different experiences, come from different cultures, different backgrounds, because when we come and we really listen, what happens is iron sharpens iron. And uh, what's beautiful about that is often our stance can be challenged that we're currently operating in. And if we're open to uh, the challenge, 
um, we are either going to be more affirmed that we're standing in the right place or we're going to change our stance. See, the problem, one of the main problems that's existing in our culture right now is people are living in echo chambers. And so what is happening is people are only taking in media and content that affirms what they already believe. And therefore, if their belief is mistaken, they're just becoming in, more entrenched in their mistaken belief and more deceived. This is a major, major problem that should not happen in the church. The church should be a place where there are no echo chambers, but that, yes, we're unified in the essentials, but we can have plenty of dialogue and, and critique and challenge over things that are of secondary importance. In the church, you, the church is the one like organization that exists where you have a bunch of people together that would never hang out together if it wasn't for the church. This is just the truth. Look, a lot of you would not hang out with me. We don't have the same interests. Maybe our personalities don't jive together. And I wouldn't hang out with you. It's just reality. But here's the beautiful thing of the church and the community of God and the family of God is that you get all these people that are different together in a community that is designed to be a family. And so we have to, you know, relate to one another. And so and, and iron sharpens iron if we have the right approach and attitude. And especially if we start from the position and all of our conversation, I could be wrong. Let's start there. I could be wrong on this. All right. In the local church, you should have, and I hope we have here, Democrats and Republicans. You're both welcome here, and I hope you feel welcomed here. Because Republicans don't have all the truth. Democrats don't have all the truth. Right? Jesus has all the truth. We should have old and young. We should have wealthy and poor. We should have sick and healthy. We should have people that have a variety of parenting styles. We should have homeschool, public school kids here. A variety of convictions on how to live out the life that Jesus calls us to. Our differences, if handled correctly, sharpen us, refine us, and can often redirect us for good. All right. Just recently, I talked to somebody really closely, real close uh, to me that I love so much, and she told me that outside of her immediate family, the person that has influenced her life the most and uh, in the most positive ways was a poor friend that she has that has been often homeless in you know the last 30 years. That is the different, different backgrounds and places making us better. Do you know it is extremely hard to villainize groups of people different than you if you are actually in a close, close relationship with a person from that group? And so, it's really hard to look down your nose at a poor person if you have a close relationship with a poor person. And not just an acquaintance, but somebody you have a deep relationship with. It's really hard to look down your nose at the wealthy, because poor do that to the wealthy, if you have a good, deep, personal relationship with the wealthy person. 
It's really hard to look down your nose of a, at a person of a particular race if you are close friends with at least one person that is of that race. It's really hard to look down your nose and demonize and villainize a Democrat if you have really, if you have a one really close friend that's a Democrat. Or look down your nose at a Republican if you have a really close friend that is a Republican. The church gives us that opportunity. That's why we should want the diversity that is here. All right, here's another reason why we should desire the, universe, the diversity and unity in the church. Uh, number two is that we are all given spiritual gifts. And we need each other's spiritual gifts. Paul makes that clear in our passage. Each person is given a gift. A spiritual gift is a special ability that God has given you to build up other people in the church. That's what it is. And so, we, if we're going to mature, if we're going to grow up in Christ and not remain spiritual infants, right? Not remain those 60-year-olds that are still playing video games in their parents' basement spiritually when they're, you know, 60. If we're actually going to grow up in Christ, each person has to be utilizing their spiritual gift. And we grow up, we mature into the fullness of Christ. And the Apostle Paul, he mentions apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors in this passage, but other passage on spiritual gifts mention things like the gift of giving, mercy, helps, hospitality, administration, faith, encouragement, discernment. And what 1 Corinthians 12 tells us is that the Spirit of God is manifest um, in uh, God's people as they exercise their spiritual gift. Which means God's power, his presence, is experienced in tangible ways when each person is exercising their spiritual gift. For example, have you ever been on the receiving end of a person that has the gift of giving? You know, the, 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 the house payment is just about due and you're wondering how we're going to make ends meet. And somebody that has the spiritual gift of giving blesses you and with the exact amount of money you need to pay for your house payment happens quite often in churches. And what's the result of that? I just got to experience the power and presence of God in a tangible way because somebody exercised their spiritual gift. And I now have more faith in God as my provider. I am growing up. What about somebody who has the gift of mercy? And you just, you're going through a difficult time and you just let it all, all out with them. And they listen to you and they give you empathy. And they pray with you. That you're experiencing tangibly God's power and presence in your difficulty at that moment. And what does that do to you? It matures you in the faith. Oh my goodness, God sees me. God sees me. What about the person that has, you know, the spiritual gift of encouragement? And you're down in the dumps and you're just wondering if you can put one foot in front of the other and make it through another day. And you get a text just affirming, like, God's work in you. Oh. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I could go on. All right. Um, 
Let me uh, then say this last thing, why we should value diversity and unity. So we grow, right, from our differences. Each person is given a different spiritual gift, which is the <coughs> diversity piece, but when we're using it to serve each other, that's the unity piece that causes us to grow up in love, to grow up in Christ, so we become closer to the fullness of Christ and his stature. Here's the last thing. Paul says this at the end of the passage, and we can't miss this. It's easy to miss, but it is so important. We must speak the truth in love to one another. Um, Tim Keller, he says this in a sermon. Truth without love is imperious self-righteousness. Love without truth is cowardly self-indulgence. What this means, this is what I believe he's saying, if we speak the truth without love, we are arrogant and we are domineering. And what we're doing is we're gratifying our desire to be right. But if we speak the love without truth, what we're doing is we're being cowards and we're gratifying our desire to be liked. Both are selfish and both hurt the person on the other side of you. Because the person on the other side of you, if you're not willing to speak truth in love, is going to be in denial about their flaws and shortcomings that are causing damage to them in their relationships. But if you're unwilling to speak love with the truth, the person on the other side of you isn't going to hear you. They're not going to be able to receive it. It's, there's going to be offended and hurt and like, who are you? We must speak the truth in love. This is how we grew up in Christ. And so let me ask you to consider right now, do you have a person that you have given permission to speak the truth in love to you? Have you ever said to a person, look, I give you free reign to speak the truth in love to me. I want you to tell me those things that you are seeing that you think I'm blind to and that they're causing damage to me and my relationships. Will you tell me those things? If we are not doing this, we're not going to mature. Too many people have never given permission for somebody to do that to them. And so what happens is they become more entrenched in their ways that are hurting them and others. And they're blind to it. It's, it's not Christ-like. May we be a community that speaks the truth in love. And it's, don't, don't tell me, well, my spouse does that. You need somebody else other than your spouse to do that for you. They should. But if you're a guy, you need another guy that has a hunting license into your life and can just tell you. After this sermon, I had somebody talking to me it was great she said I have that friend and this friend told me that when you are listening to somebody share their opinion and you don't agree with it you just go completely silent and it is hurtful to the person that's on the other side of you that's speaking the truth in love to a friend that's what we need do you have it if not you will remain a spiritual child Grace makes diversity and unity possible. God in us makes diversity and unity possible. The inclusivity of the gospel makes diversity and unity possible. The essentials of the gospel make diversity and unity possible. 
We need the diversity and unity of the church to grow in Christ. And included in that is we need people that are going to speak the truth to us in love.